So we're going to pick up in uh, the study in Ephesians chapter 2, and we just read that really quick and get into it. We're going to pick up exactly, basically, where we left off in the last session and uh, go from there. We're, we're dealing with the, the right now where he speaks of our being raised together with Christ, made to sit together in heavenly places. So let's start in verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience or the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, filling the desires of the flesh of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, in the last class, we were dealing with that as well, but we didn't get through the whole thing. And I want there's some areas that I want to talk about. And we will begin by reiterating one of the verses, or basically the the testimony of this I see in the scripture is in Exodus chapter 15. And I'm going to read Exodus 15, or Exodus chapter 15. We'll read verse 13 through 17. It says, uh, Thou and thy, now the King James says, Thou and thy mercy has led forth your people. I'm going to read the rest of it in the English Standard, but what I want to do, the reason I'm doing that is to show you how he how interchangeable these words are. Uh, Thou and thy mercy is the King James. English standard says you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed and you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard they trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Now, again, this is also, you, you remember the prophecy, to whom has the, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is, this is a picture of that as well. This is the arm of the Lord that's being made manifest to overturn an entire uh, state of his people in the bondage and all of those who have it's, it's basically you see all of the chiefs of Edom leaders of Moab inhabitants of Canaan he uses these three nations not specifically just to yes to, to look at the historical historical aspects of it Stephen not only the historical aspects of those nations that were um, 
over and trying to subdue the Jews and Israel. But he's showing it looking forward to the picture of that which kept men in bondage, that which kept men under. And you'll see that throughout many prophecies. We don't have time to go in. But this is what it's speaking of. God truly bringing by his mercy those who he has redeemed into the place of his, and notice that, the place of his habitation, the place that he dwells. Again, this is a picture of where Jesus, and, and Jesus even says this, it's in Exodus 4, I believe it is, where, uh, no, it's not in, uh, I think it's in Exodus 17 or 14. Anyway, he uh the, the prophet says, you've seen what I've done unto the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. And that's reiterated by Jesus, who shows the fulfillment of that picture when he says, in my father's house are many mansions, right? I will bring you unto myself. That's the whole work. And I'll bring you into the father's house, the place that he uh, dwells. And so that's the... That's what this is speaking of. And we see that this is a picture of our salvation. So let's go on. The Lord will pass by, or you allow his people to pass by till the um, uh, to the people pass by whom thou hast purchased. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And again, this is the picture, testimonially fulfilled in what we're reading in Ephesians chapter 2, that by grace you are saved, and he has made us, he has raised us up, quickened us, made us sit with him, quickened us together with Christ, and then has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is this is the embodiment of what this testimony promises. And what I'm what I'm wanting to say in this is these are not just metaphorical terms. There are commentaries that you can read and they will say, well, this is just speaking metaphorically. These are just, you know, speaking heavenly places and all of that's just speaking metaphorically because we know, you know, we're not actually in heaven yet. Well, I'm here to tell you are. Because the, this is not metaphorical language. This is language declaring salvation to be the fulfillment of the testimony. And to be raised with the risen one and made to sit with him in heavenly places, in the place where he abides and in the place where he calls his dwelling place, the sanctuary that he constructs and not men. And you're going to, that, that should ring a bell in the Hebrew in the Hebrew letter. This is speaking of salvation. This is our our God has done this through his great mercy. And this is what it also says in Ephesians chapter two. Remember we've read this already. This is the fulfillment. Um, but God who is rich or abundant in his mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Again, taking in both of the terms, mercy and love, as we see in the translations and 
uh, Exodus 15, who is rich or abounding in mercy, his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved and raised us up. This is the same picture. So we see this work of the kindness and the mercy of God. We see this, um, we see the work of God being that he brought us and the word there for led, where he says he, you led them in your strength. The word there actually means to give rest or to bring to a station, a watering hole. And there's even one that says to bring to the place which is set forth as the goal or the destination. This is what he's done. This is the place. Where is that? If any man be in Christ. That's the place. That was always the place God intended. God has not intended to bring us into Christ as like a holding cell for the next station that we're going to. We're in Christ. And in Christ, we have come to the goal. We've come to the fulfilling of this promise, of this testimony. We have come by the strength of God's arm to the place of his own holy habitation. And I hope we just consider that because it is from that standpoint, our conversation is in heaven from whence we look for his appearing. It is from that standpoint that we look to see him. We don't look to see him to take us there one day. We look to see him because that's where we are and that's where he is. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Same picture. You are found in that union, that place, that relationship, that fellowship. Now, from that standpoint, from that advantage point, set your heart to see him. This is a grace that has brought us into heaven itself through the work of one man. The work of one man by being brought into his one body, filled with the fullness of his one life, where he has made unto us all things. That's a beautiful thing. Now, um, let's go forward here. We also talked about Zechariah chapter 10, uh, verses 6 through 9. and That's a, another testimony of the same thing. I will, uh, verse 6 of Zechariah 10, I will strengthen the house of Judah, I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to, the, to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as through, as through wine. Yea, their children shall see it and be glad, and their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will hiss for them, and I will gather them, for I have redeemed them. And they shall increase as they have increased. And what is this a picture of? Well, it's the picture of a shepherd who calls this, the, when he uses the word hiss there, but it's actually a picture of the whistle that the shepherd would use to call the sheep together. Remember Jesus telling the, telling the disciples, you know, they all knew that the Jews were the ones that were God's people. But then he tells me, I have sheep 
I have sheep you know not of, that are not of this fold. So it wasn't just the Jews that he was going to bring in. It was the Gentiles as well. And that's what this is also a picture of, because we see in these pictures, they will be as though I have not cast them off. Romans 11 speaks of that and says, their casting away was not them being put away forever. Their being cast aside was for the redemption of the whole world, was so that the Gentiles could come in. But what shall their receiving be? And I dealt with this some this morning. What shall their receiving be if their if their casting aside has meant redemption for the world? What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? God will bring them from death unto life, just like all men, just like he has to do to all. There's not another door for anyone. He calls to those who are his. He calls to his sheep. He calls to them and says, come to me. Find what you were always intended for. As Paul would say in Romans chapter 9, the promises were to them first. These things pertain to them first. Yet they refuse. They will not come to him that they might be saved. And his heart was that they would be saved. What it, what is his what is his implication in that? Their salvation means they receive all that God had promised. That in salvation they receive God's promises absolutely fulfilled, whether it be the covenant in its actual spiritual fulfillment, whether it be the glory of God in its spiritual fulfillment, all the things that were pertaining to them first as God's people, they receive in its spiritual conclusion in the person of Christ. And this is, again, the work of God, the work of his mercy. Isaiah, we dealt with this too, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10 through 12. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand for an ensign of the people. The word stand there actually means to be raised up and made erect. That's the that's the word for resurrection. When you take it to the Septuagint, you see how it's used in the New Testament. The Greek Septuagint here uses the same wordings. It's it's the word for the resurrection. It means to stand up, to stand up and erect, which is what happens in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand or be raised up for an ensign or a banner over the people. And to that ensign shall the Gentile seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Again, not just the Jew, but the Gentile. And it goes down in the verse 12, and he says, he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. See, that's what we're seeing happening right here in Ephesians 2. If you keep going and you realize he's going to deal with the Jew and the Gentile and has, how God has made both one by the cross. This is him calling a people to the inside, and their gathering will be unto him. Shiloh shall come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Same picture. It's this ensign that all the people of the of Israel knew about ensigns because that's what they camped by. They each tribe, and I had a diagram of this that I drew years ago in a study, all around the tabernacle, here's the tribe. 
and every single one of the tribes had had a banner over them and every banner had the name or had a symbol i'm sorry had a symbol a picture that represented that particular tribe and they were all different colors so all of them all 12 tribes had a banner had an ensign over them however you can go to numbers chapter 2 and see that On each side of the tabernacle, there were actually four major or main insides or main banners. And it was significant when you see the wording of the uh, of Ezekiel and you see the 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 the, uh, the beasts of when it's used in Revelation. But look at this. This is what was on the inside. We read this prophecy and people go all kind of crazy places with it. But look at the testimony. Let me, let me get that. Yep, verse 10, Ezekiel chapter 1. And for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side, and the four had the face of an ox on the left side and had the face of an eagle. That's the four faces. Well, guess what? That was the four symbols that were on the four ensigns that were the major ensigns on each side of the tabernacle. What does that mean? It means he's speaking here of the restoration of the picture of a people gathered, a people that have been encamped about the tabernacle where God dwells in their midst. It's that picture. And what makes it even more beautiful is God even condenses the picture even more as he does and brings it as, as uh, we misread and misquote that. Uh, verse many times, he narrows the way, narrowed is the way. Well, the way that leads to life is narrowed by God so that what? It points to one. It comes to one singular point. That's the narrowing of it right there. That's why it's not wide open for everybody. It narrows to such a point that only one can be there at the end of it. And this is what he shows. When these four faces, the four insides, the major ones, come to be embodied, they come to be embodied in a man, in the holiest of all. In fact, God shows to the, all the nations or all the tribes, I'm sorry, not nations, tribes, that they are all found in that man because every single stone in the breastplate of that high priest represents the, the color of the banner over each tribe. It is color coordinated to show a picture. God did this on purpose. He didn't just throw. That's why the, that's why the, the pattern that God showed was so intricate, so intricate because he was painting a perfect testimonial picture of a perfect salvation 
that would gather all men into the true ensign and bring them under the one banner to find in one man, which is what? His banner over us is love. That is the love wherewith he has loved us, raised us together, made us to sit together in heavenly places. It's to bring both Jew and Gentile into one new man, thus making peace. There's the love of God made manifest. There's the banner over which that flies over all who have believed. We don't have our separate banners. I mean, we, we have a lot of banners out there that we fly, but there is one banner that truly flies over the house of God, and that is the banner that Christ is. That is the ensign that God has raised up. And the sooner we get to see that banner and see reality in the singularity of that one, then we can live in the reality, not I, but Christ, not Jew, not Gentile, not male, not female. And when all of these distinctions that we hold to with such fervency are given way to the truth as it is in Christ, then we can actually begin to enjoy the reality of a salvation we have. Then we stop arguing and debating and having all of these scriptural debates. Who cares? Who cares? Oh, I'm right. Okay. And God lives. Christ lives in you. I don't care to be right. I don't care to have the winning argument. I care to be found in him having nothing of my own. And that's exactly what the work of God has performed. It has brought us into the person who brings us into heaven itself. And that's the picture that we want to talk about tonight, to bring them into that mountain. Now, in the last class, we also dealt with this statement, by grace you are saved, and how he speaks of that in the present tense that has perpetual meaning or has perpetual significance. How the grace that he's speaking of by which we're saved means that you are by grace presently, you were saved already, which means now you're in a state of perpetual salvation. It doesn't move. It doesn't change. See, that's the beauty of this. It's not something that's always moving on us. It's not something that's always changing on us. Why? Because we're not brought into some sub secondary, subsidiary relationship with God. We have been brought into God's own fellowship. The place that he has established for himself to dwell. That's a big deal. We've been brought to his abode, his sanctuary. So I'm focusing here because for us to recognize the presentation of Paul in Ephesians 2 and how it's the absolute end and showing our salvation in Christ to be the absolute end of the matter regarding this and many other prophetic utterances, then we can truly understand what it means to be raised up, seated together in heavenly places in Christ. This is the place where he had always intended. Remember, um, when Paul writes, remember what we read a while ago. 
You shall bring them into your mountain, into your abode, into the sanctuary. Remember what the Hebrew letter speaks of and says? You are come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God. That's where we've come to. This is the same picture. To be in heavenly places in Christ is the same as him saying, you are come unto Mount Zion. And in the context of those chapters, he's showing them everything they waited for and looked for by faith, you have through faith come to. You've come to the reality of it. You have come to a mountain that cannot be touched. Why does he say it that way? Why does he say you've come to a mountain that cannot be touched? Because he's telling you and telling those to whom he's writing that what you've come to is the spiritual fulfillment of that tangible testimony. See, our problem is we think if it's tangible, that means it's real. We think if it's visible, that means it's real and evident. And the salvation and the reality to which we come is spirit and truth. And if you divorce it from spirit, you've divorced it from the truth. In fact, we're going to look at the wordings of these things in a moment to say, this is the true. This is what is true. You've come to the true tabernacle. You've come to the true reality. What does that mean? See, and this is a big deal when you're talking about heaven itself, when you're talking about Mount Zion, when you're talking about the sanctuary of God. What's true and what's not? What's genuine and authentic and what is just made up? What's man's idea regarding these realities and what is reality itself? See, that's what I'm wanting to get us to understand. It is in the mountain of the Lord that he has brought us, the place of his sanctuary that he established and not men. This is Hebrews chapter 8, exactly what he says here. Uh, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 8. Now of the things which we have spoken, and he was speaking about the high priest and the high priest going into the holiest of all, and he's going to reiterate that too, but he's speaking going into the high priest. Here's the sum of everything. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord has pitched and not man. The word pitched there means to make firm, to set up in a perpetual way. And it is a wonderful use of the language uh, when he's using that, pitch the tent, because he uses the language that's usually synonymous with erecting a tent or a tabernacle, you know, when they would have to move and they would have to keep pitching the tent and erecting it in different locations. When God would move, they would move. But now there's something that doesn't move. But he uses that because the Jewish believers would understand what he's talking about. And then he declares that God has erected and pegged on, on permanent soil, if you will, a permanent tabernacle that men have not created 
and has not pitched and has not constructed, but God himself. This is an abiding, eternal tabernacle that will never be moved ever again. This is the tabernacle or the temple, you could say, that the staves of the Ark of the Covenant have been removed forever. When they would take the staves out of the Ark of the Covenant, and they did so in the Temple of Solomon, you know what that means? This is no longer a, 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 a temporary, uh, mobile tabernacle. This is a place of permanent glory. This is a place where God will dwell and his name shall be there. And it says when he can, when they placed it in there, it says they removed the staves of the Ark of the Covenant. They took it out. Why? Because it can no longer be on the shoulders of men because now it abides perpetually in that place. That was the picture. Well, that's what he's showing here. We are seeing a perpetual uh, permanent tabernacle God himself created. And that's the place that he calls his own abode, and that is the place in which we dwell. How did that happen? Right here, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Why? Because this is what holds us in place. This takes you right into Hebrews chapter 9 that would tell you that this is the one who stands in the presence of God for us. Determining reality and defining in the sight of God a finished work and standing there as the life, the redemption, the righteousness, the sanctification and perfection or completion of a people, of his body, the church securing in God's sight the condition of all who are called by his name. See, that is what we're seeing here. And if you look at this, passed into the heavens, that's an interesting phrase, and I begin to look that up. And most of the commentaries correctly, I think, speak of the heavens that he passed through and he says, these are a picture of the veil, which our high priest passed through into heaven of heavens, the holiest of all. He passed through those heavens to get to the holiest heaven, the very place of God's immediate presence. Just as the Levitical high priest passed through the veil into the holiest of holies, neither uh, Moses nor even Joshua could bring us into this rest. Jesus, already spiritually, hereafter in the actual presence, body, soul, and spirit, brings his people into heavenly rest. How does he do that? In himself. He brings a people, he brings his body the church, whether Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter because now that which is joined to him is identified by him, is defined by him in the sight of God. Just like the picture of the Holy of Holies and the high priest. 
But he passed through the veil into the holiest of all, carrying with him the blood of the sacrifices of the of the of the day of atonement. And our great high priest went once and for all through the visible heavens, which was what the veil. You see, on the veil there was also cherubim, which was a picture of heavenly things, but the true cherubim on the throne of God, on the mercy seat, were hidden by those cherubim. So he passes through that to get into the very throne room of God, to get into heaven itself, and to bring us into heaven with him as his body, the church that is filled with his fullness. So he went through that veil by virtue of his own blood into the presence of God. This is this is the picture. So in Hebrews chapter 4, that was uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Let's go up a little bit in Hebrews 4. In verse 8, it says, For if Jesus, now it says Jesus in the King James, but it's actually Joshua um, is what it's referring to. If Joshua had given them rest, speaking of Israel, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. And look, this is this is this is leading up to this very place in verse 14 we have a great high priest passed into the heavens here's how this rest is actually received this is how this rest that he's talking about is actually appropriated by those who have come to christ it is receiving him and it is being found in him because joshua they could not bring rest to the people of god but jesus had Jesus has brought us to the Sabbath that God was always pointing to. With every Sabbath of the testimony, it was pointing to this very Sabbath, a Sabbath that would be fulfilled in Christ. And he has brought us into this rest. There remaineth therefore rest to the people of God. What does that mean? See, many people read that and they say, well, what that means is we haven't arrived there yet, so it still remains to be received and remains to be found. No, it remains. It remains. It is perpetual. That rest calls to the souls of all. It remains for the people of God. It remains permanently in place for us to come to it. That's what he's talking about. What they could not bring about, God has brought about in a permanent way, and it remains for us to come to. The true rest that is found in Christ because for he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works. This is salvation. This is salvation. As God did from his. And that is a beautiful picture of the creation of God where he looks at it and he says, this is very good. And he rests from his labor. See, this is what salvation brings us to, and that's what this is talking about. It brings us to the place where God has looked upon his work and said, this 
is very good. And therein is our rest found. Therein is no more labor necessary except what he says, therefore labor to enter into this rest. What does that mean? To appropriate the once and for all work of God that has already brought us there. That's it. Believe. Don't be like them and not believe. Do not fall under the same disbelief as they had. It was, that was the warnings throughout this chapter. Have faith, believe in the work that he has accomplished, and do not fall again after the example of their disobedience. Come to the rest. This is the same rest Jesus calls them to when he says, come unto me, you that are weary, you that are heavy laden. And he's speaking to those who are weary and heavy laden by the toil and work and zealous activities of the law. And in those works, nothing was ever accomplished. Righteousness was never accomplished. Holiness, perfection was never accomplished. But here's the sum of it all. It is accomplished in Christ. Said that this morning in these lessons and in the prophecy, thou hast performed all our works in us. There's the accomplishment. There's God's accomplishment in us, for us, unto us, by his mercy. Amen. Not of works, lest any man should boast. He's about to say that. He's going to say that in Ephesians. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It is God's gift to you. That is the rest that we have entered into. And if we are we have come to this. We have rested from our labor. We have ceased from our works as God did from his. Why? Because we're not just looking at a testimonial rest that God's found in the first creation. That's a testimony. We have seen God's new creation come about. And we have found true rest in the work of his hands. Not man's hands that he has pitched. Not something that man had constructed by his own efforts. What God has done. We have been brought to the place of his holy habitation. No wonder, he says in chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 1, holy brethren, partakers of this heavenly calling. That's being called heaven or invited into the heavens. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Christ Jesus. Consider him. It's the same as Colossians. Set your affection upon him. Let your mind consider only him. Why? Because this heavenly calling is only realized for us because he is our high priest. Therefore, hold fast to your profession of faith. Same thing, again, he says in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, therefore, do not cast away your confidence. They were casting away their confidence because they were being swayed to go back to the externals of the law. They were going back to the tangible things and the sacrifices, holy days. They were doing that. And he said, no, do not cast away your confidence because the confidence that you have in Christ brings about true reward. 
It's the true recompense of reward. What is that? Christ in you is the reward. I am your exceeding great reward. Where does our confidence lie? As Paul would say in, in, in Philippians, we are those who are the true circumcision. There's another way of saying it in the, the true circumcision that worship God in spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. And that's what he's saying to them. Consider the high priest of your profession and do not have confidence in you. Set your heart to see the reality God sees in the face of his son. And in the seeing of the high priest that God beholds, you will see your salvation perfectly complete and your rest will be made sure. Not as to possession, but as to your soul's enjoyment and acknowledgement of it. Therefore, you can rest in the rest God has brought you to and not trying to labor to finally one day rest when you get your works all in line and do it right. God did it right. And God did it all. Perfectly. So, he says, um, let me... <laughs> read those... So let's go into some of these words here, into the true, because this is what I want us to show. This is what we've come to, the true, the true tabernacle, the true place. Um, Hebrews yeah. chapter 9, verse 24 says this, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. That's pointing to the tabernacle, the temple. That's pointing to the holiest of all. Sacred place. However, that's not where Christ entered. Why? Because they're a figure. They're a testimony of the truth. He went into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Love that. He didn't go into a figure. We're not dealing with more shadows and types and testimonies. We're not people that are holding tight to metaphors and, and allegories. We're people who are, pos are possessing in our soul the truth, the reality, the substance of it all. That is why the soul must see the reality that's come to it. Else, or else we will call this the truth and neglect the great salvation that is sunseeable and unknowable by natural faculties. We'll, we'll be prey and deceived by people who say, hey, you have to add this, and you have to do this, and you can't do that, touch not, taste not, handle not, and we'll fall prey to those things every time. Why? Because touch not, taste not, handle not is a tangible expression of a fear that God has not yet done what he said he would. That your part is very important in this scenario. And I'm telling you, the only part you have is to be found in him having nothing of your own. That's your part. That's my part. Problem is we need to see the one who lives in us and stop trying to be the one who lives in us. 
God has wrought in us all things, all perfect things. The true has come to us and, and holds us and keeps us there. Notice, who do you think can rip you? It's just like Jesus saying, no man, nothing can take you out of my hands or rip you from my hands or rip you from my grasp. And he says the father's grasp too. He uses both ways, mine, he says the father. So that's that's pretty secure. Who do you think can break into the abode of God and take you from it? I've never heard of anybody being kidnapped out of the out of God's house. At all. So when we're talking about the true, that's what we've come to. The true of that mountain. We've come to the true mountain of God. And what does it mean? The word true. I want to look that up in the Greek. The true. It is the antitypical and the archetypical contrasted with the typical and symbolic. Meaning, another place says, it is that which not only has the name and the external semblance or image of something, but has the actual nature that corresponds to the name. It is the real, true, and genuine article. That's what we've come to. We haven't come to something typical, symbolic, we haven't come to something that has an external semblance that we can look to and call holiness and righteousness and God and everything else that we do. That is why God forbid them under the old covenant to put a semblance on him. Do not make anything with my semblance on it or put something out there and call it me and give me some kind of external semblance or appearance. Why? That's not me. The real thing doesn't come with that type of semblance. The real thing is spirit. That's the true. That's the genuine. It's the reality in contrast to the pictures of it. When we're talking about the true, we're speaking of something that is the opposite of something that's frail, uncertain, defective, and imperfect. How many people have all four of those terms readily available when they're describing their salvation? There's something defective about it. There's something frail and uncertain in it. There's something imperfect in it, so I've got to perfect it. No. If it's the true, it is an act. This is the definition. It is absolutely opposite of what is imperfect, defective, frail, and uncertain. It is that which is remaining. It doesn't fade away. It doesn't die. It doesn't decay. It is the true. It is that divine, eternal reality that was the basis of all of those things that did have tangibility and semblance and did have frailties and defects. If the law was perfect, he says, there would not have been place salt for another. See, that's, that's the contradiction. That's the contrast. And what we've come to is the contrast of that frail, fragile, defective thing. Oh, it looked beautiful on the outside, and it was beautiful on the outside. And as God intended, it was a beautiful, God 
patterned testimony, but it is nothing compared to the spiritual, perfect, indefective, unfrail, and truly sure reality to which we've come. And that's why Jesus throughout can say, the better than your temple, the better than Solomon has come. And that's why she says, in the light of the better than Solomon has come, if the queen of Sheba would come, the queen of Sheba will come and she will judge these people. She will judge you. Why? Because in the testimony, the queen of Sheba came face to face with the shadow. She came face to face with the testimony of the great king. And she couldn't stand on her feet. There was no breath left in her. Do you not think what we've come to is better? Yeah, Jesus says it is. And because you haven't received me and still hold to that frail and defective thing, even the woman that came to the testimony will stand up in judgment of you. What a, what a statement. Why? Because he's trying to show them, I am transitioning you from testimony to the truth, the true thing. And this is the, and this is the burden of the Hebrew letter when you read the whole letter, to declare and really the basic burden of the whole scripture when you it was to declare to a Jewish believer who was being told to go back to the law because that's what makes them like God would intend for them to be. That's what makes them God's people. That's what brings them the inheritance. If they would go back to that, but it's the Hebrew letter was to tell the believer, the Jewish believer that they have come to the better thing. They've come to the truth. They've come to what was real and not just an outward semblance. They've come to the thing that had the nature of what the temple and the tabernacle and all of that was to represent. It has the substance of it all. And what I want you to know is that in your soul right now dwells that perfect substance, that perpetual abiding substance that God looks at and says it is very good, and he finds his rest there. He's satisfied in it. He's satisfied in it, and yet we are still looking and waiting and hoping. The very reality he has given as a gift to our soul is the thing he looks at and and feels delighted in because it embodies everything he has ever, ever desired. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And here you have other places. This is Jesus re Revealing himself, not just the true tabernacle Hebrews writes about, he's revealing himself as the truth, that which doesn't have a semblance but has the substance and is the substance. In John chapter 1, verse 9, John writes, that was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh to the world. John 6, 32 says, uh, Jesus speaks of himself as the true bread that come from heaven. He says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my father's the husband. In 1 John 2, verse 8, 
John writes this, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shine. There's the whole thing. The contradiction and the contrast is there, but the transition from the one to the other has happened. We are in the truth. Those words, by grace you are saved, is what has brought us there. God has raised us up and made us sit in the true heaven, in the true place of God's abode, which is embodied in his Son. That in him, it says in Colossians, in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bottom. I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. There's the place. There's the abode. They encompass the work by which we're raised up and seated and made to be found in him, the true sanctuary, to be found in him, and having no access or fellowship with the Father except that one high priest passes through the veil and stands before God's face and secures our state in his sight, holy and without blame before him in love. And that condition and that determination and that uh, 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 identification has nothing at all to do with the Jew, Gentile, male, female, bond free. It's Christ all. Isn't that his body? That's what defines his body in Ephesians 1. His body, which is the fullness of him that feels all. He didn't say his body, which is Saved believers filled with him. No, nope. his body, which is the fullness of him that feels all in all. That's not just word. That's not just semantics. There's a reason he defines it all by Christ. Nothing by the ones in whom he lives because everything for the church is defined in its head. Everything for the body is defined in its head. Heaven itself is defined in its head. That's the true Israel of God, Paul would say in Galatians. True. That's the Israel God always intended. That's the one he predetermined. Israel is my son. The Hebrews 11 speaks this at the end of chapter 11 verses 39 and 40 he says and these all having obtained a good report through faith why because they they looked for these things they waited abraham and has all of these who waited by faith and saw these things afar off but he says they had a good report through faith but they received not the promise because god had provided some better thing for us it's not that God said, hey, I'm not messing with you people. I've got this special group of people I'm giving this to. That's not the point here. The point is what they had as a promise, they didn't receive the fullness of that promise. But unto us. It's what uh, Peter says in his, in his speech, right? God made all of these 
promises to the fathers, and he said all these things to the fathers, and he says, but unto us, their children, these things have been fulfilled. That's what he's saying here. These obtained a good faith, a good report through faith, but they didn't receive what they had faith toward because God has brought to us that better thing so that they without us should not be made perfect. What does that mean? That we come together in that perfect reality. We come together and take partake of the better thing. Not one person has preceded the other. We all partake of the same better thing. They didn't have it before. We don't have it instead of them. In Christ, we all partake of the better thing. God knew that this was the time in which the reality would arrive, and they and us have received it. We haven't received it without them. They hadn't received it without us, and God hasn't left this out, left them out. That's what he's saying, that without us, they should not be made perfect. We've come to receive the perfection of it, the completion of it. What God actually promised, we have come to receive it together in one perfect Messiah. They heard the promises. They heard the promises we have received. and They have also. That's what um, Hebrews chapter 6 says. I mean, yeah, let me let me show you this. For when God made promise to Abraham, this is verse 13, because he could not swear by no greater, he swore by himself. And this points you back to the things that, that Abraham looked to by faith, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, multiplying I will multiply. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Oh, I'm sorry, let me go up a little bit. Um well, I want to read the whole chapter, but I'm not. Yeah, let's start in verse 9. Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, the things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Now, these are people he's telling them, do not go back to the first principles of the old covenant because God's brought us something better. He's brought us to something perfect. Do not lay again these things. Do not lay again these foundations. Okay. That's the beginning of chapter 6. He's speaking to these same people and saying, we are persuaded better things of you. Why? How can he say that? Because you've come to the better thing. We are persuaded, of, we are persuaded better things of you. Because God's brought you to the better thing. Why would you want to go back? Just like, just like Paul saying, why would you once again want to be in bondage? Why would you want to go back to these things? We're persuaded better things of you, things that accompany or are in accordance with salvation. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. We desire that every one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Now, that's not saying hold on to the end. That's saying give full assurance of the hope unto the end. We're going to see the end here in a minute. That you be not slothful, but followers 
of them who through faith, listen to these words, be not slothful, but followers of them, or you could say imitators of them, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's pointing back to those under that Hebrews 11. He's speaking of those in that way. He's saying, be like them. They held to something, but when he came, they received him because they knew there was something more. They saw by faith something afar off, and when that afar off thing came, they received and partook by faith and patience to wait on it. They inherited the promise. Now, be like them. Because the promises that they've inherited are yours. Everything they have received in Christ is yours. This is the better thing that we're persuaded of you. We would want you to also rest in the assurance of that to which you have come. For when God may, and then he gives an example. For when God may promise to Abraham because he could not could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. This is huge. He's saying God was incapable of lying and God hasn't lied to you. God has made good on his promise. God has done what he said he would do. And if you go into Hebrews more, the oath that he did was an oath that says, thou art my son. Thou art a high priest forever. Right? There's the oath he sealed it with and confirmed it with. And this shows it was impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge. What is he talking about? Fled for refuge. The fleeing for refuge means, as Peter will say it too, who have fled from the evil and corruption of the world to lay hold upon the hope that is set before. We have held, we have, we have fled from the world. And he's talking about the Jewish world. He's talking about the, uh, those under the law, which is who he's writing to here. Those who were once under the law. And he says, we have fled for refuge to take hold of the very reality that that thing we fled from kept us from. Why would you go back? Why would you lay these things again as if they're necessary? You've come to their embodiment, and here's where it is embodied. This is the perfect reality. We lay hold upon the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor the soul, sure, steadfast, that entereth into that within the veil. Who is that? Our forerunner, who is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. See, there's our hopeful field. There's the anchor that holds us in place. We are anchored in heaven itself. Amen. Here's the point. Now set your heart right there where you are. Set your affection where you are and see the face of the high priest who has made this a reality for you. See, I want to look at believers a lot of times when I hear them talk to me and all that. And I've, I want to say the same thing Paul writes here. I am persuaded better things of you. You've come to something great, and yet you bring it down to nothing. You make it as if it's just a temporary arrangement until the real good stuff, or you work your fingers to the bone trying to perform something that you're never capable of performing and that God has already performed in you. I'm persuaded better things of you. You've come to the better thing. You've come to the very hope of a people, of an, of an age itself fulfilled. You've come to Jesus who stands in the holiest of all and anchors your soul in the certainty of that place, in the sight of God. This is what holds us. This is where we're found. This is the reality that our God has not lied to us. The God who has made the promises has fulfilled the promises he made. And he fulfilled them in a man who stands in the holiest of all and anchors our souls steadfastly right there with him. Again, this is the perfect, beautiful picture. Um, of what Hebrews 11 speaks of and Hebrews 12, because this is, you, you see the whole thing, a better thing he is uh, for us. And then Hebrews chapter 12, and we've already alluded to it. This is, again, the fulfillment of Ezekiel 15. Um, you're coming to Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, assembly, the church of the firstborn. Now notice this. Notice this. This is not separate things you've come to. This is what you've come to when you come into Christ. These are not just a multitude of things. This is showing that what they looked for, if you put them parallel, Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12, what he says you've come to is the embodiment and fulfillment of what they hoped for. It's the better thing God had for us. The better thing that has now come to us. That we have received in the person of the spiritual substance, the true reality. And so, look at the correlation here. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, which means what? To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills it. That's the same thing. And being his church means you are in the mountain that he calls home. You're in the sanctuary he has erected. 
and not men. Children, the church of the firstborn written in heaven to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just or righteous men who have been made perfect or brought to completion. This is what we've come to. No wonder he says at the beginning of this chapter, hey guys, cast aside the weights that do so easily beset you and look unto Jesus who's the author and finisher of this faith. Why? Because you've come to this. You've come to the author and finisher, the beginning and the end. Let's lay aside all of these external things. That's the sin that easily beset them, the law, the ordinances, the rituals, the externals that they looked to and, and held to for righteousness. He says, set these things aside because they will distract you. They will beset you, and they are of no use. Go to Colossians 2 at the end of it. That's what he says. These things have a show of wisdom, but they are useless. We like the things that have a show of wisdom because men can see it and we can see it and feel good about ourselves. But we've come to something man can't see, a righteousness that men cannot observe. We've come to a perfection that men can't applaud because they don't even know it's there. That's the good and the bad of it, right? The good of it is man can't touch it and he can't mess it up. The bad of it is if that man's not perceiving by the spirit, the reality of the true, he's going to be deceived by the defectiveness of the other. So what do we need to do? Set our hearts to know our salvation. Come and see the Lord. That's the, that's the whole thing. We've come to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That was the sacrifices they offered to God. The blood that cries out, that sacrifice did nothing. Guys, I'm telling you what we've come to is perfect. Amen. We have come to heaven itself. We've come in the person of our great high priest into the very presence of God, and he anchors our soul in such a wonderful reality. Let us not be deceived to look to the earth, to be deceived to look at ourselves, to be deceived to try to water it down and bring it into the earth to define it. Let God bring our perspective to where we actually abide. Amen. And the heavens itself to see the rest that God himself enjoys and that he's brought us to. So we'll stop there. Raven, are you saying we're anchored there because he's eternally anchored there? Absolutely. Eternally not to be moved ever yep. again. Yep. Amen. It's cool. Yep. Amen. So cool. Amen. Amen. Yeah. When and that's, the, and that's it. Yeah. He's, he's the anchor of it. All. Which it says, which hope we have as an anchor. And then it embodies that hope, which shows you that it's not a hope for something. It's the, it's the one that was hoped for that now stands in the presence of God. And that hope anchors us having received and, and 
or taken of, as they said, they've laid hold of the hope. That's who he is. And he does anchor us exactly where we are. And it never moves. If you think you're going to move, he would have to move first. Amen. Cool. Amen. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Amen. And I doubt, and I don't think he will. <laughs>